The reading tonight is taken from the book of Genesis, starting from chapters 2, verses 15, until 3, verses 10. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is the word of God. Father, this uh, account seems so uh, dated to us, so ancient. There are talking serpents, there are bizarre trees, and yet it is so obviously contemporary and so obviously applicable to our lives. Help us see that this evening, we pray, so that we would observe the mistakes that were made in the garden 
and looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, we would avoid them for the sake of his name. Amen. Now, the, um, the Bible insists there are two great turning points in history. There are two that really matter. And if, if, if you went out into the street and asked people, what are the most significant turning points in history? It would probably depend on how old they are and um, whether they had the privilege of studying history for most of their life to university level and beyond uh, and were very, very wise in doing so. But it would depend. So some might say, well, Second World War, big turning point. And obviously that's true. Things would have turned out very differently if the Axis powers had defeated the Allies. But even so, as a turning point, it's the demise of the British Empire, the rise of the United States as the, uh, the greatest power in the world. I mean, that's fairly significant as a turning point. You might say, well, I mean, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89. Wow, what an event, if you were born. Wow, what an event uh, that was. It just shook up everything in history. Yes, but I mean, it had been up less than 30 years, so relatively not that big a deal in the history of the whole world, you'd have to say. Or you might look to your own life and say, 9-11, wow, just over 10 years ago. That really changed things for this period of time. But in a greater scheme, of, in 50 years, will it be seen as a definitive event, a great turning point of world history? Maybe, maybe, maybe not, maybe not. Your, your personal turning points... Presumably everyone here can remember their birth date. And most of you probably think that is a fairly significant date in history. <laughs> Life just wasn't the same before you were born. It just was very different. You might forget your spouses, your parents, your dads, etc. But your own birth date is quite firmly logically quite important. Turning point. The Bible insists really there are only two that matter of enormous significance. The fall of humanity when our forebears rejected God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those two transform everything. Those are the two turning points of history, and nothing compares to them. We return then to uh, those early chapters of Genesis. We had a break for a few weeks. We return to Genesis 1 to 4. And uh, we're thinking then about the fundamental beginnings of the Bible and who we are, what an, influence, what an impact they have on who we are as human beings. And tonight then we look at Genesis 3, the fall, this first great turning point of history. And um, we've said all along when we looked at this that uh, chapter 2, verse 3 to the end of chapter 3, 324, this second creation account, it's chiefly about, well, its main point is, well, why is the world as it is? If the first creation account of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 2 is is uh, God created the world. That's its main point. The main point of chapter 2, verse 3, to the end of 3, 24, is why is the world as it is? And really we're going to spend a month then in this chapter, chapter 3, looking at this great turning point of history. We'll look at next week the, the immediate consequences of sin, then the curse of God, and then the impact of death. We're going to have a great time on Sunday nights. You can look at it right there. But while it is one of the great turning points of history, actually tonight, we're going to mainly look at it as well, it's a, a, a pattern that many of us follow. It's a pattern that sin often follows. Because the serpent, or Satan, he hasn't changed his methods. And us humans, we're still just as susceptible as the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, were. So although it is one of the great turning points, one of the great two, mainly tonight... We'll look at 
how it's a pattern that many of us follow. And the remaining three weeks, we'll look at the impact of it. Three things, three things we can look at uh, that happen. The mocking of the Lord's goodness, the denial of the Lord's truth, and then the, the desire for new pleasures. And we'll see this, how this little dialogue pans out. Really, we're just in these verses 1 to 7 of Genesis chapter 3. Let's dive in then. First then, verses 1, and three, 1 to 3, the mocking of the Lord's goodness. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent. Oh, the serpent. Who's the serpent? The writer doesn't say, now, there was a serpent. Once upon a time, there was a serpent. It's the serpent. We're meant to know who this is. I mean, presumably Moses wrote the book of Genesis, is, about, is, uh, is what most people ex- uh, believe. And he's expecting people to know who the serpent is. If we're unclear, but you get to the New Testament, the serpent is the devil. You get a couple of times explicitly stated, Revelation 12, 9, 22. This is the devil, the serpent. As uh, verse 1 says, here, he's a creature. God has made him. Originally, he was good, but he rebelled against the Lord. We're not told a whole lot of detail about that in the scriptures. Perhaps the clearest is 1 Timothy 3, 6. It tells us that Satan fell because of his pride. But beyond that, we don't know a great amount. And really, the author of Genesis is not interested in the serpent's history or Satan's history. The main thing we're meant to notice from him being there is evil didn't originate from man. God had made man good. And evil comes from what's the suggestion outside of him. There's nothing flawed in mankind. Mankind is good. The serpent, then, his power is really only one of suggestion. He doesn't overwhelm Adam and Eve and sort of beat them into submission with a half Nelson or something like that. I, is that a, I don't know what that is. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't overwhelm them. He just suggests. Just sows doubt. Actually, What he does to the woman in particular is he performs inception. He plants an idea deep in her brain that grows and grows and grows until she acts upon it. Two little things in particular here. Uh, He attacks or mocks the Lord's goodness in two little ways. First, the question, and then secondly, the, the title he gives for the Lord. Look at the question. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, uh, Schrelling read this brilliantly. This is not a gentle inquiry. Did you go to Scotland last week? Oh, I didn't realize. That's interesting. Did God say about that a tree? Oh, I, did. I hadn't quite known. It's mocking. It's sort of in the construction of the Hebrew. It's deliberately mocking. Did God really say that to you? Really? Is he that sort of killjoy? What sort of miserable God have you got? God said to you, that you can't eat from the trees in the garden. How absurd. Look at these trees. They're beautiful trees. And you're telling me that God won't let you eat from them. I'm amplifying a little bit. But that's the sense of it. That's the, it's a mocking. Really? The NIV is pretty good. Really? God said that? Pfft, that's ridiculous. I can't believe God would say that to you. Implication. What a miserable God. I mean, he's so restrictive. He's just putting all these boundaries around you. What a killjoy your God is. Really? He said that? Now, 
Of course, that's not what he said. Back in Genesis, uh, back in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, God had said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Literally, eating, you must eat from the trees in the garden. I've created all these things for you. Go and enjoy. Have a great time, was his command. Oh, just don't eat from the one. But there's a distortion there. God, the devil's the serpent, concentrates on the one thing. God, what a killjoy. What a miserable little God he is. That's his question. And then the title, the second thing here, the title, these two overlap, but the title he uses. Verse 2, did God really say? Now that's unusual. Throughout this account, uh, the title is The Lord God. The Lord God. You can just see it. Where do we have it read from? Um, verse 15 of chapter 2 tonight. The Lord God took the man. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded. Verse 18, the Lord God said. Verse 19, the Lord God said. Verse 21, the Lord God did this. Uh, da, 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 da. Verse 1, the Lord God had made the wild animals. Satan, God. He just calls God. Not the Lord God. Because Lord, in capital letters, it's translating Yahweh, That is God's personal name, his relational name. It's the difference between a school teacher saying, call me sir, or call me Matt. You can't do that, it's just odd. You can't call your school teachers by your first name. Do you ever have that? It's just weird. You can't, but there's a difference, isn't there? One is sir, and one is relational. And the Lord is God's relational name. He's revealed himself as one who cares. I am the Lord, I am committing myself to you. I'm making promises to you. I will care for you. I will provide for you. I'm intimately involved in your life. I'm the Lord. That's my name. But Satan wants to, wants to iron that out, wants to make the woman forget that. God. God. It's just distance. I mean, all sorts of people believe in God. It's very different from a name, the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Very different. God. So Satan's trying to make the woman just forget that there's a God who cares for her. Let me think of it this way. If, you, if I refer to my parents as Mr. and Mrs. Fuller, that has, that has a bit of a difference. So I turn up, we go and visit for the weekend or a day, and um, dad opens the door. Hi, hi, how are you? How are you all? Hello, Mr. Fuller. Is Mrs. Fuller in the house? Now, that is one, a bit odd, but two, it's, it's a denial of a relationship there. There's a denial of past history. The words mom, dad, they have an evocative sense to them. It means that me as a perfectly competent adult with, you know, with children can um, go home and revert to being a child when I use the words mom and dad and I you know, get weighted on all those sorts of things. I just revert. I just go back about 30 years in time. The um, mom and dad, they have a connotation, a sense to them. Mr. and Mrs. Fuller don't. And that's what Satan is trying to do, the serpent. God distant, aloof, uncaring. He's making that suggestion. So he both explicitly mocks the Lord's goodness. But then secondly, he's trying to deny, deny that there's any caring, any relational element to him. He's just distant, aloof. He doesn't care. Well, Eve is partly taken in. She's not named Eve yet, she's just a woman. But uh, uh, verse two, the woman said to the serpent, well, she partly corrects him. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But to be honest, God, she's using that term, God, not the Lord God. 
God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. That's true. And you must not touch it. That's an exaggeration. God didn't say don't touch. He said just don't eat. So she's, yeah, yeah, God is a bit, she's drifting down this line. Yes, God is a bit restrictive. Yes, he, he was a bit grumpy about the one tree. He was a bit odd about it, if I'm honest with you. Yes, she's starting to go with the suggestion that the serpent is making to her. She, so she does now wonder, hmm, this God, is he distant? Does he care? What's his, what's his issue with the tree? What is, what is his problem? The, the, the sort of seed that's being sown in her mind. Now, look, this is not a million miles away from us this question and title, how they're used by the serpent. People might put it to you this way. They're probably not going to say, probably no one tomorrow is going to come up to you or this week and say, did God say you mustn't eat from that tree? They're not. But people may well come up to you if you're Christian and in mocking terms say to you, does your God really say you can't enjoy sex? Does he really say that? What a stupid God. No, God doesn't say that. He does say enjoy sex within a heterosexual marriage. But there'll be that sort of sense of mockery. Does your God, your God's got a real issue with alcohol, hasn't he? What is his problem? Why is he so petty that he doesn't let people get drunk? Your God is so, oh, just so annoying. Now notice that there's no argument there. There's nothing sensible being put forward. You know, the reason I'm not a Christian is because I do have doubts about the reliability of the New Testament. There's nothing sort of you can d- debate with there. Or they're coming along and saying, you're God. And that's it. It's just mockery. You're, you're a Christian. How medieval. Wish you'd grow up. There's just there's nothing real, nothing tangible to, to discuss with anyone here. The Satan is just mocking. And the other element that, is, that will be true for us as well today we're just at the beginning, but the sin here, it flows out of the woman doubting God's love for her. That's just the beginning, and we'll come back to that. When the Lord feels distant, when he's just God out there, sin is quite easy to do. Yeah, I'm not sure God does know what, what's best for me, really. Do you know what? I just feel like getting hammered, and that'll make me feel better. And I don't, yeah, that'll be fine. Or, I'm not sure God really knows. I'm going to hoard my money. If I hoard my money, I can protect myself. I can keep myself safe. I don't really think God knows what's best for me. I can't really trust him. Not really. He's distant. He doesn't care about me personally. When, you, when God is distant and you start to doubt his love, oh, it's very easy to sin. By contrast, if you are confident of the Lord's love and concern for you, you will not sin. We'll come back to that. But if you are confident of the Lord's love and concern for you, that will give you the strength to resist sin. The uh, mockery, or the mocking of the Lord's goodness. Second thing, we move on then, and uh, then we get to the denial of the Lord's truth, verses 4 and 5. Here we get to an outright lie. Verse 4, you will not surely die. 
the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Just a downright lie. You will not die. Don't be silly. That's just woo scaring you. You won't die. Now, this is really important because what, Satan, what the serpent is saying here is no consequences. No consequences to what you'll do. Nothing will happen to you. Go, sin, and it'll be fine. Nothing will go wrong. It doesn't matter. And look, essentially, God is jealous, verse 5. God knows that you'll be like him if you eat the fruit. Your eyes will be opened, and you will know good and evil. Now, we spoke a few weeks ago. What, what is this tree? What actually is the tree? What actually is the fruit that uh, God establishes? Genesis 2, verse 17 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, there's no magical fruit here. There's not a magical guava that they ate that all of a sudden boosted their IQ by whoop, a thousand plus. And wow, look at what we know. Have you seen the film Limitless? You, tr- you pop the pill and all of a sudden you're brilliant and can do all sorts of amazing things. It's not that. And this tree isn't somewhere out there in the world. So give up your hopes of becoming instantly brilliant. What, is, what we have, as we said a few weeks ago, the knowledge, or this fruit then, the knowledge of good and evil, that is choosing what is right and wrong. So when you get this phrase coming up again in 2 Samuel 14, verse 17, 1 Kings 3, verse 9, choosing right from wrong, the knowledge of good and evil, that is the prerogative of the king. He gets to do that. He gets to say that is good, that is bad. That is God's prerogative to decide right from wrong. So essentially what the serpent says is, if you eat the fruit, you become a king. God is holding you back. Eat the fruit, you become a king. So this crime that they're being encouraged to do, it's not simply, or it's not primarily, primarily one of morality. It's a crime of sovereignty. It's not just a, oh, I've done that thing wrong. It's saying, I will be in charge. Actually, the crime of Adam and Eve, it, it's not that they're law breakers, but that they're law makers. They say, we will decide what is right and wrong. We will be in charge of our own destinies. That's their crime. That's what's going on here. Well, let me just put it another way. In chapter 2, verse 17, when God says... You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. Essentially, he's asking for faith. He says to them, eat the fruit and you'll die. He doesn't give a reason. There's no reason given for that. He says, you've just got to trust me on it. If after the service, you, uh, you wandered over and um, uh, you, you grabbed some fruit and uh, there's a whole variety of things on the servery, and you think, oh, I'll have a banana. So you grab a banana, and someone behind the desk says to you, oh, yeah, eat any banana. If you eat that banana, you'll die. <laughs> Why? I can't tell you that. you just got to trust me. Now, how do you feel about that? Hmm. You must tell me why. You must tell me why I cannot eat banana. I want that banana. Before, I didn't care, but now you've said that. I want that banana. What is, what is it about that banana? You've just got to trust me. You've just got to trust me. Well, I don't want to trust you. I want to make up my own mind. I want to decide if it's a good banana or a bad banana. That is my decision. 
I want to be in charge of bananas. <laughs> Now, what you do at that point depends upon the relationship you have with the person behind the counter. If you know them, if you trust them, you think, okay, okay, it's death banana. I won't eat it. <laughs> But ultimately, at that point, there's no reason given. It is an issue of faith. God says to them, "Eat that fruit, and you'll die." Trust me. But sh- trust me. Will you let me be king and determine what is right and wrong, or will you determine that you are king and decide what is right or wrong? Trust me. That's the issue. That's the issue here. So certainly there are issues like that in life. You read something in the Bible and you think, I don't know, I don't know why God insists upon that. It doesn't make any sense to me. God's sort of absolute commitment to truth-telling. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me in the workplace. Sometimes it is just more convenient to tell lies. To to obey God at this point, I don't know why. Why would I do that? It'll just make life difficult for me. Why would I want to obey God here and now? Well, because He says, trust me. But I don't want to. It's just more complicated. Trust me. But there'll be implications if I trust me. It's the same issue. It's one of faith. Will you trust me? Says the Lord, or will you think, no, no, I'm at full or decide what is right and what is wrong. I know better than God. Trust me. So do you see what the serpent is doing here? He's chipping away. First of all, he mocks the Lord's goodness. Then he denies the Lord's truth. And then finally. Well, he disappears off the scene. Then, it's very striking. I hadn't really noticed this before. So, verse five, then the Satan just disappears. He never actually tells the woman, "Go on, go on." Here it is. He never chops up the fruit, if you can do such a thing, and serves it on a platter. He, he just disappears because his work is done. He's made suggestions. God isn't really concerned for you. He's not good. Nothing will go wrong. There are no consequences. He's performed inception then upon Eve, the woman, and the idea grows, and so she. Well, now she's the last thing. Then, verse six. There's the desire for new pleasures. So Eve looks at this fruit. Well, the woman looks at the fruit, and verse six notices two things: the fruit of the tree was, well, first good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and then secondly desirable for wisdom. So the first thing then she notices the fruit is good for food, and pleasing to the eye. Well, hold on a minute. Chapter two, verse nine. Look across. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, exactly the same. What a bit! Any of the trees is good for food and pleasing to the eye. Any of them. But she's now just obsessed with the one. She's just focusing on on the one thing. This is like eBay syndrome. If you know this this sort of thing, you go online. You think, oh, I'd quite like this box set, box set of X of、um, whatever it is, house, and you think, oh, to buy it new, it'll be forty quid, and I'm willing to pay, I don't know, twenty-five quid. I'll go up to twenty-five quid、um, to bid for this thing, and, and no more. And so you start to bid, and you're doing it in a slightly odd way. She's two quid, yeah, it's fine. Five quid, yeah, okay.、Uh, seven quid, yeah, it's fine. Eight quid, no. And you, this has been going on for about a week or so. Every so often, you look back, and then you know it, it nudges up, it nudges up. Eighteen pounds, twenty pounds. Who's this? Who is John Boy seventy one who keeps gambling, keeps betting against me? And you get slightly obsessed with this thing. No, John Boy seventy one. I will have this box set. You will not have the box set. Bid, bid, bid. Yes, I've won seventy pounds. 
And you've, you've paid £70 for something second-hand you could have got for £40 brand new. <laughs> and you say, oh, what has happened there? You've become obsessed with just the one thing. You just, you're, you've got complete tunnel vision and the one thing has dominated your vista. It's all you can think about. And it's ridiculous, objectively. And yet that's what we're like. That's what we're like all the time. Satan emphasizes to the woman God's one prohibition. And she focuses on the one prohibition rather than his generous provision. The one thing obsesses her rather than the extraordinary generosity of everything else that's in the garden. And that's very common, I think. God can richly provide for us, but we fixate on the one thing we don't have. Now, I don't know what that is for you. And we can happen in all sorts of ways, in small ways and large ways. For myself, I the, uh, the way that, it, as I look back, it's most, was most obviously true in my own life, was with the issue of um, fertility and being unable to have children. And there were times very much when I sat down and basically thought, God, I don't care that you've given me a great spouse and you've housed me and you give me loads of friends and I'm, I go on extraordinary holidays and great activities and I love my work and, oh, and above all, you've sent your son to die for me so I'll be with you for eternity. I don't care about those things. I'm just obsessed with the one thing, which is children. And I just can't think of anything else. And so, look, I know, you're, I know there's stuff about fertility treatment and how I should or shouldn't engage with that and what sort of treatment I should take. But I don't care what the Bible says. I'm just obsessed with this one thing, and I'm just going to go for it. Unfortunately, there were friends who came along and said, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Very easy to get obsessed with the one thing. Not an issue for many. What will it be? It may well be, Lord, look... Really? May sexual pleasure just for within heterosexual marriage? I just can't. Really? I can't run with that. Look, I, I forget the fact that you've given me great friends and you've given me all sorts of gifts and I, I have work that I really enjoy. And, and yes, you've saved me for eternity, but I, I can just forget all of those things and become obsessed with the one thing, the one thing, which is I must have sex. I must have that. I'm going to ignore everything else you've given me. And just think of you as a killjoy unless I have the one thing. It's very easy to think in those terms. So Eve notices then this one tree. Yes, this tree. She uh, notices, verse 6, it's good for food and pleasing to the eye. But she could have got that pleasure elsewhere. All the other trees were equally pleasing. She's just obsessed about the one thing she wasn't allowed to have. And related to that, the second half of the verse, she also saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Desirable to make herself equal with God in some way. I'm missing out, says Eve, says the woman. I'm not entirely sure what it is I'm missing out on, but I'm sure I'm missing out. And so I'm just going to run with it. And you see, at this point, essentially what happens, God says, don't eat. The woman says, but my desire... My desire is too strong. God's word says one thing, but my desire just, oh, I'm sorry about it, but my desire just takes me over. And she gives in to the desire. And Adam does too with her. The outcome, 
well, sorry, end of verse 6, she also, sorry, so she took the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the outcome, verse 7, well, in one sense, Satan's correct, look. The eyes of both of them were opened and they literally, in the original, knew that they were naked. So the serpent had said, verse 5, eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll know good and evil like God. Verse 7, they eat the fruit, their eyes are opened and they know what? And they know they're naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Or more of that next time. But just at this point to say, it promises so much. I know God's word says that, but my desire, my desire is so strong. I just, I just have to give in to my desire. And you give in and then, oh, oh. Oh, that didn't go quite as planned. Oh, there are consequences. Oh, oh, that's disappointing. Their eyes are opened. There's no liberation. There's merely shame. And paradise collapses. Anyone says, next week, for the next few weeks, we'll look then at the implication, what happens, this great turning point that affects the whole of the globe and the whole of history. But paradise collapses at this point. And you see the, um, then uh, that little thing at the bottom there, did you see how the logic has run? How has this happened? Well, there's been a, a mocking, or beyond all these, there's been a decrying of God's goodness. Then you get the deceit of Satan. The woman's desire grows. There's disobedience. And ultimately there's death. That's the chain. Do you see where it begins? It begins then with a mocking of God's goodness and a lie about the implications. And so at those points, if you're a Christian here tonight, you've got to attack at those two points. Remember that the Lord is good. And remember there are implications to sin. There are consequences always. And it begins then, right then, it begins because the woman doubted God's goodness. That's why she was receptive to the lie. There's no consequences. Because God had become distant from her. And again, let me say, if you are confident of the Lord's love and concern for you, not just humanity in general, but for you as an individual, then you can resist sin and the temptation that comes. If you doubt his love and concern for you, you'll give in. You'll give in. Let me give you a daft illustration and then the proper biblical one. The daft one. Uh, in our family at the moment, we quite like George MacDonald. Uh, George MacDonald is a, a novelist uh, and a theologian. He's a sort of forebear of uh, Tolkien and Lewis and inspired both of them to write their great Christian allegories. And George MacDonald did the same. His children's stories are great. His theology is awful generally. So don't read anything. Don't read a textbook as if you would by him. Um, but his children's stories are quite fun um, to read to children um, or Big children, if you wanted to read them on your own. One of them, one of his better ones is um, it's called The Princess and the Goblins. You can see where this goes. The Princess and the Goblins tells a story of Princess Irene and the young hero whose name is Curdy. Odd name. Um, but Curdy is his name. He's a brave youth. Irene is a young princess. She's brought up largely by her great-grandmother, who loves her. Her daddy is king over the kingdom, but he's often not absent on kingly business. Her mother has died. Her great-grandmother brings her up, and her great-grandmother loves Irene. 
loves her and takes very good care of her. In this kingdom, there are goblins, and Irene is scared. So one day she says to her grandmother, Grandmama, I'm scared of the goblins. What happens if they take me? And so her grandmother gives her a ring and says, take this ring, put it on your finger, and I've attached to this ring, can you see, a magic invisible thread. And uh, if you ever feel nervous or scared, take off the ring, and then you'll feel the thread. And follow the thread, it'll bring you back to me. Irene is thrilled and thinks she'll be safe. On one occasion, she is then lost in the kingdom and she can hear goblins and she's scared. So she takes off the ring and starts following this invisible thread. It takes her underground and she starts thinking, Grandmama, what are you doing? This is madness. This is madness. I'm going into the goblin's lair. So she slows down. She just about keeps on going. Saying, Grandma, you've made a mistake. You've, you've got it wrong. And so she lets go for a while, the, the thread, until she remembers who her great-grandmother is. She loves Irene. She cares for Irene. She has never let Irene down. And when she remembers her grandmama and sees her grandmama's face, she picks up the thread and follows it. The thread leads to Curdie. She rescues Curdie. Curdie rescues the kingdom. Hurrah! Um, and um, all is well. Now, it's nonsense, if you didn't realize But McDonald's point is this. What he's trying to get across is this. Sometimes you'll go through life if you're a believer and you think, what is God doing? What is this? Where are you taking me? Why are you putting me through this? Life is just complicated. I don't, you've made a mistake. And the antidote, says McDonald, look up and see who your God is. Remember that God is a creator. He's a father who cares for you personally. And when you doubt that supremely with the eyes of the New Testament, look to Jesus Christ. The one that the New Testament describes as the second Adam. Who, of course, was tempted in a garden. The Garden of Gethsemane who, when the temptation was so extreme that he sweated blood, said, Father, do we have to do this? Is there not another way? I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with going to the cross and taking your wrath. Is there another way, Father? But trusted. Trusted. He said, not my will, but yours be done. I, I can't see it all, but I trust you. And he went to the cross and he died so that we can be reconciled to him. If you doubt God's love for you, look to the work of Jesus Christ. And it is when we do that supremely that we see God does care for us personally, intimately. God is actively involved in our lives. And so I can trust him. I can ignore the lies which say that God doesn't care, God doesn't want what's good for me, God is distant, and trust him. And in doing that, we can resist the sin, the lies, the deception, the mockery. As we look to the one who resisted in the garden and died in our place. Let's pray together. My loving Heavenly Father, we haven't even started to look really at the implications of that first sin and uh, its impact upon our planet, upon us. But even as we look at the pattern that it followed, the temptations that the serpent or Satan put before the woman, the mockery, 
of you as a good God, the lie explicitly about the implications of what takes place, would we, observe, would we look at that, recognize the lies, look to Jesus Christ and recognize that you are good, that you care for us, that we can trust you with our lives and so obey you? Looking to Jesus as we do. Amen.